Welcome, Welcome from Alpha, from alpha to, omega. to Omega. Hello and welcome to the 86th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Sunday the 24th of June 2018 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. This week we have part two of our discussion with show stalwart Professor Andrew Kleiman about the Communist Manifesto. This episode I have the new Patreon subscribers Devin G and Senin K to thank, along with, of course, all the existing and loyal monthly subscribers. You too can donate to help keep the show going by hitting on that there PayPal button or signing up over on Patreon. If you want to leave a comment, please do it on the YouTube channel. And if you are listening on YouTube, please, please, please hit the subscribe button and give the episode a thumbs up. I'll also be appearing on a couple of upcoming episodes of the Swampside Chats podcast. Check it out. It's the goddamn best commie podcast out there. Now, to the interview. What what do you make of the proletariat today? Are they the weakest they've been since Marx's time? I, I wouldn't describe weakness as as the problem. Rather, the the the, the problem. It's what I said before. In my view, this is the problem: is that these these attempts to, to to move forward. You know, whether people explicitly call themselves revolutionary or not is neither here nor there. In, in my book, the question is, you know, where are their concerns going? Where are their rebellions going? You know, their their direction. But the problem is. The impediments to the ongoing development, you know, so things are moving in a direction, but it, it, it doesn't get the time to develop. Like, sorry, you're talking about the, these things that come in and they stymie the this development. Like, who exactly do you do you, do you think is doing that? Like, names well, and names. The, 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 Look, the, I, I, the trade union bureaucracy comes in. There's a wildcat strike. Okay. Um, the trade union bureaucracy comes in and says, no, look, we've got a contract. You can't do this. I mean, how many times has that happened? I mean, it's, it, you know, in, in the 1970s in this country, in, in heavy industry, it was like a daily occurrence probably in, uh, you know, multiple places. That's just one for instance. You know, um, there, there are just numerous ones. Where, like in Europe, do you, do you have, you know, socialists... And, and communists and whatever, whatever you want to call people, you know, who are saying, you know, the workers have to, you know, run their own organizations instead of us building a party to draw them into what we want and we lead them, you know, or we represent their interests. Those things are not there, you know, so they're not getting any, any assistance and they're, they're getting things that, that disempower them rather than empower them so I, I, I don't even I don't even need to name names it's just like this is this is our everyday experience we see it all around us it, it's just just when you look at it from a different perspective um, it, it looks different from how it's usually portrayed yeah I, I have a book I think it's quite a famous book I've yet to read it it's on my shelf but um, it's called I don't know you've probably heard about it. it's called the Intel- maybe you've heard about it, the intellectual life of the British working classes. 
Have you heard of this? Is that E.P. Thompson? No, this is a, a fellow called Jonathan Rose. I, 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 I may or may not be familiar with it. I certainly haven't read it. I, but yeah, it, it doesn't really ring a bell. Yeah, no, it, it, it basically talks about like the, you know, how the British working classes self-educated, you know, all through this period, probably the 1800s and 1900s, shows what they were learning and the type of books and the intellectual books they were reading as opposed to how people think now about how working class people are dumb, not able to to educate themselves. It's a very different idea that it used to exist of what the working class could do that I think today, certainly the people that are college educated and that look down on working class people. And, you know, quite frankly, a lot of times, you know, culturally in the colleges, it's like a training on how to be elitist. Uh, you know, I certainly felt that I, I was guilty of that when I left college. Uh, well, I, I agree with you, but I didn't quite understand the end. You, you thought that you were guilty of... Oh, sorry, of uh, guilty of... You know, you're kind of inculcated to think that, oh, you know, everybody's stupid, we're really smart. Right, and you think you picked that up in college? Yes, definitely, yeah. Uh-huh. And do you come from a working-class background? From farming stock. So you, you don't come from... The professional from farming. Yeah, you don't you don't come from the professional section, you know. Right. See, I think most middle class people, you know, sort of just grow up with this, you know. So they're they're kind of like their their instinctive way of being is uh, is elitist. But you know, other people can pick it up. I suppose yeah, middle class, you know, middle class in England definitely would have more of that. Like in Ireland, certainly where I grew up, the structure was quite flat. You know, rural Ireland, you would have mixing between, say, different classes a lot more so than in, say, urban areas, I would reckon. I, f I definitely noticed that in myself. Uh, certainly after reading Marx and getting into radical politics, you look back at some of the things you would have think and you would see how it was inculcated in education to have those attitudes towards to say, the working class and what they are able to do or not able to do. So um, we had this uh, deal between essentially the capitalists and the working class for a good wage and the social welfare and safety net when there was a large organized working class to do it and also when we had revolutions in russia and in eastern europe and china that there was a big pressure on the capitalist class to give their workers a good deal so they would say not be so revolutionary we don't have that anymore there's essentially no real left alternative should we expect to see some more of these immiseration tendencies become stronger and stronger should we see these dynamics that Marx was talking about that, say, got dampened by some of the realities of, say, 20th century geopolitics and, and politics? Are we likely to see more immiseration and a more trend towards the radicalization of the of the proletariat over the coming decades? And by immiseration, I can't even say that word, immiseration? Yeah. <laughs> um, you, you mean the decline in living standards? Yeah, or the ability to buy a house, for example. People have to rent. They don't like their landlords. You know, their hours are going up, like as a part of, you know, this idea of the falling rate of profit and things like this. Right. Um, this all depends on the, the rhythms of the, the cyclical uh, economy. By the way, I, I, I don't and, and never have 
um, agreed with this idea of a capital labor accord in the early post-war period that you were uh, invoking. But, I mean, if, if there was such an accord, let me see the paper in which it was written. And, 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 and it, 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 it's, a, it's, a, it's a talking point of certain people. But what will happen, I, I don't think we, we, we can know. Um, I don't think that there is a particular um, direction. Certainly, there's nothing that's necessary. You know, but even in terms of likelihood, I, I, I don't know. Living standards on the whole, in absolute terms, have been going up, uh, you know, in the third world where they are, have the most to, to go up. And th this has been for, for, for decades and decades now, you know, and they, they, they rose, they've risen under neoliberalism in, in the U.S., not at the same rate as, as before, but it's not because of neoliberalism, really. It's because of a much slower um, growth of, of, of the economy. I, I, I don't think that there's any necessary direction, and I don't think it's even necessarily cyclical. It's, uh, what happens, happens, and I, uh, I wouldn't try to predict it. But beyond predicting, you know, what I look at is what are the the economic laws and, and, and uh, tendencies that pull us in one direction or another. I just don't think there is any such a thing that is moving us in, in one direction or another here. So you're of the opinion that the, this idea of the, the falling rate of profit that does cause crises, that if the system is being managed in such a way as to, say, not allow a large crisis to clean it out and regain profitability, do you, do you not see the tendency, say, of the politics to be a function of this rate of profit? Okay, okay. Right, I mean, the, 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 the tendency of the rate of profit to fall is a real tendency, and it, you know, does, it is a contributory factor towards, you know, economic crisis tendencies. Uh, that much I agree with. You know, and that's an ever-present uh, tendency. But now you're, you're, okay, so you're adding in the ability of capitalism to recover from these crises. I mean, to the extent that they don't do uh, a real, you know, purging of, of the economy and they tend to hold things together. Yeah, you, you, get, you get weaker growth over the long, long periods uh, and that has an effect on slowing down, you know, growth in, in living conditions. I agree with that. Is 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 that like necessary? It, it's not. It's not economically necessary that you get this uh, desire to um, keep everything together instead of having a major crash that would, you know, sort of allow for a new boom. Um, there there might be political factors that you would say pull push in that direction for sure. But you know, to try to talk about political decisions in the same way that we talk about economic laws, it, it doesn't, something about it seems wrong to me, because it's, it's apples and oranges. So, I, I mean, I agree with you, there, there has been that tendency, I think it's largely responsible for sluggish growth for decades, this tendency to, like, try to hold things together and to prevent a major crash. Yeah, that, that tends to retard growth, which tends to retard the growth of living standards and could, to some extent, retard, you know, could, could, could put a stop to, to increasing living standards. But, but I don't want to make any predictions here. It doesn't seem to me that, like, this is necessary, and in some sense, we know it's not. 
Okay, in some sense, we know that, you know, we could have a major, major, major crash that wipes out everything. You know, so, so something uh, like the Great Depression in the U.S., because uh, that's where it was the deepest, um, you know, or, or even worse. There's, there's nothing really to prevent that. What I'm, I suppose what I'm trying to, to pull some strings at is just some of the, the tendencies that I see in, say, the current political economic situation. Say, for example, the idea, like the tendency in practically every country in the West to increase indebtedness of people to offer more credit for people to be able to buy houses, more multiples of their salaries, and thus causing the house prices to rise. This kind of tendency of the system at the moment to do this for many reasons linked to probably the falling rate of profit and and just the capitalist tendencies in the system at the moment leading to this idea of you know the proletariats getting extremely annoyed with how things are are working it seems to me that that we can see developing which was going to create say a more radical element of the proletariat than say 15 20 years ago when that dynamic didn't exist to the same extent that dynamic being indebtedness yeah, like as if you know the average house price in most countries was not as high as a as a function of wages. The level of indebtedness has right. been rising. Private debt has risen. I think across the board, across probably every OECD country over the last what forty years. You know, in most European countries, it's I think doubled the private debt. Right. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I think this is is largely and I, and I'm. Um, as close to certain as I could be about anything in the U.S., uh, it had everything to do with um, the slowdown in growth that we, we've seen, you know, after the, the first 20, 25 years of the post-war boom. Um, you know, so the government continually papered over problems and, and, and kicked the can down the road by covering over bad debt with more debt. You know, that, then, then we see... Like uh, the Great Recession, well, private debt as well. Right, right. So it's 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 government debt, but also policies, government policies that encouraged the the, pro- the build up of private debt. Yeah. So uh, I mean, in the United States, it, it's just a scandal, um, and it had everything to do with the Great Recession. How they let the uh, the loan to value ratios, you know, uh, go up, which is what you're referring to. Uh, how many? It's essentially the same thing. How many multiples of? Uh, well, the loan-to-value ratio is, is the value of the home is 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 uh, two hundred thousand dollars, and you, you borrow uh, one hundred ninety thousand dollars. So that's a a loan-to-value ratio of uh, you know one hundred ninety to to two hundred thousand ninety-five percent. Um, you still can't do that in this country legally, I don't think. Um, but they, you know, they kept going up and up and up. Uh, that had everything to do with the Great uh, Recession. So probably that's, that's happening elsewhere. I haven't seen the statistics, but I don't doubt what you're saying. Yeah, um, I'm a little bit losing the question, but this is one of the things that they they learned from the Great Depression: is you can keep things going for a while, you know, with with debt expansion. 
from 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 the standpoint of of, of the, the capitalists and uh, the immediate interests of people, you know, you you would rather have that than ha- have the whole thing unravel and be plunged into a deep depression. I think Marx and Engels came out at one stage and said, I think certainly about Holland and maybe another country that they saw. Uh, there might be the chance of a parliamentary route to communism. This seems to go kind of at odds with what's in the manifesto. Right. Well, first of all, when they write the manifesto, this is in the days before, you know, even universal suffrage for men, even universal suffrage for white men, right? There's that. I, I, I think what, what I, I, I know what you're referring to, and I believe it to have been a commentary on something or other response uh, on something or other by Engels after Marx had died and he said, you know, we, myself and, and, and Marx, you know, used to, you know, kick this around, this idea, you know, we would speculate on this. It, it's interesting because Marx became much more revolutionary. His concept of, of revolution deepened, uh, in particular after the Paris Commune. You know, like I, I read you that thing before from the the, the, the preface or whatever to the 1872 um, German edition of, of the Manifesto. That's the year after the Paris Commune, and he um, quotes, the working class cannot simply lay hold of the ready-made state machinery and wield it for its own purpose purposes. Uh, that doesn't exactly preclude a parliamentary role to the gaining of state power, it doesn't fit that easily with it. So I mean, I I, I don't know uh, what period, you know, Engels uh, was saying that he 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 Marx kicked this around. I'm not even 100. It, it, it's it's accurate. It, it's certainly possible. Um, and if I remember, Engels said, you know, we're we're talking about particular places and times. I think you know he mentioned. The Netherlands, like you said, and uh, the United States as, as possibilities there. I mean, I, I don't preclude that. I'm much more concerned that, you know, we're not going to have a, a liberal democracy in the United States uh, if we keep going the way we're going. It might be very, very soon before our rights are taken away. <laughs> that, that's my immediate concern. But um, So it's in the entirely opposite direction. You know that's 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 fundamentally not the the key issue when we come to to rev- social revolution. So you know I wouldn't say that means that Marx, if, if, you know, if he says okay, look, it might be possible, you know, to to come to power in a political sense by parliamentary means. Uh, that's neither here nor there, really, in terms of you know the perspective of social revolution. Because the, the social revolution is not a matter of different people, you know, taking political power. It's a matter of changing economic and social conditions. Fair enough. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about before we finish up? Well, you know, you sent me a list of uh, questions that you might ask. One thing I thought was really interesting was that there's this, you know, the, when, when I was saying, why, you know, why, why is the manifesto so, so um, popular, you know? Uh, why does it have, like, primacy of place? Like, well, people read it because it's short, and they get assigned in, in college or whatever because it's short. And another thing that happens is, you know, the professors say, you only need to read the first two parts. 
you know, you don't need to read the third part and fourth part at the end. So, you know, you're, you're down to 7,000 words in the first two parts. Uh, but it's this longish third part. And, you know, that's interesting because you, you asked me, like, does this have any relevance? Um, and what, what that third part does is to situate, compare, contrast, and situate the, the perspective of the Communist League with respect to other um, tendencies and currents that call themselves socialists. And a lot of the stuff was, you know, things of the time that I, I read what the description is and I'm like, I don't even know what, what the hell they're talking about. Uh, you know, but they, they must have, right? People at the time must have gotten the references. They're, they're just kind of vague to me. But, but some of the tendencies there, um, you know, uh, we still have where they've come back. Uh, Marx mentions Proudhon, which was a big problem in his time, Proudhonism. And similar stuff to Proudhonism, you know, has become very, very popular uh, on, on the left uh, in recent years. Like what? Well, I mean, Proudhonism is basically... Once I describe it to you, you you'll, you'll know what. I want to like name particulars. Predominism is basically a, a, a way of saying, let's change the nature of capitalism by changing exchange, by changes in the, um, changes in the uh, monetary system, yeah, and by changing the, the, the laws that regulate exchange more generally. So it's partly monetary reform. And it's partly trying to change the nature of capitalism by tinkering with mode of exchange. In other words, to be specific, Proudhon was saying, you know, what, what happens is um, people do an hour of work, this one does an hour of work, that one does an hour of work, that other one does an hour of work. But, you know, when it winds up in exchange... Um, they don't get equal compensation. He, he attributed that to exchange. And Marx, you know, engages in a long polemic in 1847, the poverty of philosophy. He, he, spent, he spends decades, you know, on, on this question. It's, 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 it's there. The, the monetary issue is there in, in the Grindrisse, which is preparatory to the writing of capital. It, it's, all, it's all there in, 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 in capital as well. And then Marx is saying this, this is not a question of exchange. This is a question of uh, the mode of production. Um, so all of these uh, problems, these defects, these social ills are rooted in the system of production and exploitation. Um, yes, it's exploitation of the worker, but even, even more fundamentally, uh, it's the fact that labor under capitalism is not directly social. Okay, so that's a big issue, is the indirect sociality of labor, uh, and associated with that, it's that labor time has to be socially necessary to count as creating value. And different acts of labor, you know, an hour of one person's labor and an hour of another person's labor, they're, they're not equally hours of socially necessary labor. Right, there are people who are more productive, less productive, working with more advanced uh, means of production, less advanced means of production, uh, and so forth. And their hours of labor don't count equally, and that is not not a matter of exchange. That is the operation of the law of value. So it's not like 
you know, these people are getting ripped off in the market. It's not that. It's that this is this is a system in which productivity differences count. That's not being ripped off in the market. Yeah, you're being compared to an average worker with your labor. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a, that's a way of putting it. Okay, and that that's not a market phenomenon. So messing with the market doesn't change this. And Marx, you know, is at pains already in 1847, maybe even before. But when he writes the Poverty of Philosophy. He's at pains to, to like explain this difference and to say you can't just get rid of money and you can't just get rid of exchange. You have to get rid of commodities, and this requires getting rid of commodity production, which requires getting rid of value and value relations that dominate. So he goes all the way down, all the way down. He drills down to the really bedrock conditions that are causing this and in Capital, which you've read, you, there's, there's a couple of references to people like Proudhon. Um, what they're doing is, oh, I wish I had the exact reference, because I'm going to say it, and it's really funny, but I'll screw it up because I don't have the reference exactly in, in, in mind. But it's something like he wants to abolish Catholicism by getting rid of the Pope. You remember this? I do, yeah. yeah. Okay. I remember it, and okay. I didn't, so I didn't a, understand that quote when I read it. Okay, th this is it. The Pope is the privileged status of money, you know. Oh, so you 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 say okay, it's not just gold and silver that are money. Every commodity is money. That that was a Proudhonist idea, you know, and the privileging of gold and silver. And, and Marx is like, yeah, what what good is that going to do? Right, you're going to have a different Pope. You know, you get rid of what, you, you, the one Pope, you, you, you get a different Pope. So, so that's the reference to the Pope because it, it, this, 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 this it, it, the, the references are specifically uh, in the context of money, and, and you know, in that really, that section three of chapter one of volume one of Capital on the form of value or the forms of value that people find like really hard and like, what the hell is he doing here? This is the whole thing is a response to Proudhon, and Marx is trying to. Uh, demonstrate dialectically how money arises from this simple relation of two commodities. Okay? It arises on that basis. Okay? In some sense, maybe it's not uh, logically necessary, but it's materially bound up with and inextricable. Money is from this relation of commodities. Okay? So, you get rid of just the money or you change the nature of money, the same thing is going to reappear in some different form, okay? And as long as you have commodities, something like this has to arise. That's what he's trying to argue here. And right, right at the end of this, that he makes the, the, the Pope reference. You know, that kind of like, you, you focus on that, you go, oh, okay, that's what this is all really going towards. Because you, you look at that, that's kind of like a summary of that whole section. Oh, okay, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You you know you you can't you, you can't uh, keep Catholicism intact and get rid of the Pope. That's what Catholicism is. Catholicism is hierarchical. You keep commodity production, you're going to get all the rest of this stuff, right? So so those tendencies are around us all the time. You know, so like I said, there's been like a, this resurgence of. Uh, of uh, sort of a neo-Perdonism, the, the idea of trying to like tinker with the monastery system and, and uh, 
fix capitalism by changing relations of exchange. Also, he goes into some of the utopian projects, which he, he thinks are kind of reactionary in the end. Right. Uh, he said, look, uh, the way I understand that is he said, these things were like good in their time, you know, because they pointed a way forward uh, when the, the proletariat was immature. But the people who will keep insisting on them, and especially people who want to like insist that you do it our way, they're like, this is like contrary to the, the self-developing working class and, and its revolutionary tendencies. If, if you're putting your stuff out as like, this is the alternative and everybody's got to follow it. And you're not even relating to the working class, but you're putting out these, these ideas in the abstract. So, you know, at a certain moment, these people, um, you know, kind of outlived their historic usefulness and they, they, they didn't get with the, 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 the ongoing forward movement of actual people on the ground to free themselves. Yeah, it, like they reminded me, some of them, like I know there's a movement in like agriculture at the moment called permaculture. I don't know if you've read up about it at all. I have, but I, I don't really know much. It's quite, it's quite interesting, actually, because they have like this very systemic approach to agriculture, as in it would be very much a kind of a dialectical one where they, it's not monocrop, it's the exact opposite, and it's science-led, and it's treating the whole thing as a system and a system of design. When you read it, you kind of go, oh, Marx would probably like a lot of, you know, the thinking behind it. But they all, But the thing is, in the end, the idea is like, you know, you get your farm and you, you do your bit to heal the earth or whatever, and you share the surplus. They have this bit on the edge, it's called share the surplus. But in reality, what it is, is it's kind of people who have the money to buy a farm, do some kind of organic farming or something. And they usually don't share the surplus. And it's just a very middle class kind of retreat to the to the farm kind of idea. People don't like the nitty gritty of actually revolutionary organization. They think that you can just go and do it on your own. Right. Well, you know. Pretty close to the hippie kind I, of idea. I, 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 I kind of I grew up in an environment in the United States where that was the thing. You know, late 60s, early, especially early 70s, that was like the thing. It doesn't surprise me that it's still around. <laughs> yeah, like I, I also, I found the stuff on the family and on a bit on women in there. It was very strong and radical. Even today reading it, you feel it felt very radical. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I certainly I certainly agree with, with, with you there. And... You know, one can talk about, like, you know, proletariat and capitalism and all of this. Um, but if you really want to, like, understand what's driving Marx in the, in the manifesto, you, you know, beyond the particulars, read, read that stuff on, on the family and women very, very carefully. Because that, that goes to Marx's broader perspectives of, of human liberation and you know you don't you don't get his thinking so much confused with with that of like you know social democrats and stuff when you when you when you read it uh, that way you can see that what he's talking about is a real change in human relations you know that's the real aim that he's he's uh, working towards so it's you know it's not the so called ten point program or whatever that's the, the you know, and I said, like, you know, he uh, said that's kind of uh, antiquated uh, already by uh, 1872. But that was never the, the, the real aim anyway. The, the real aim is, 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 is 
um, an association in which the free development of each is the condition for the free development of all. Okay, we should have talked about that really because that's that's like how wh what is it the the second section ends? You know, that's like the the real deal. Um, you know what they were really striving for. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters by Sun Ra and his orchestra, and Anton Karas with the theme tune from The Third Man. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. <laughs> <laughs>